We mentioned last week, if you were here, that we're going to study through First Peter for a while, and uh, this is one of those times. Last week we studied the first two verses, First uh, Peter chapter one, verses one and two, and this morning we'll we'll just uh, study together. Uh, verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1 that ends with a comma. I want to remind you that hope should always be followed by a comma, not a period, because it tells us, hope tells us constantly that this is not the end of the story, uh, that the suffering or the trials that you may be experiencing, uh, we, we have a living hope. This is what we'll talk about this morning in Jesus. And so because of that, because we have hope, it's followed by a comma, not a period. It's not the end. Instead, there's so much more. We have this great inheritance, this, this great future grace that we get to be a part of. And so because of that, we have an active, growing, living hope in our Savior who is who is alive. Remember that the author of this particular book, whose words are being breathed out by God, who's writing these things down for us, is Peter. And Peter's just a normal, average, everyday sinner like you and I. He's not really anybody specifically important or, or uh, you know, doesn't have much notoriety, you know, when, when Christ goes and seeks him out. He's just a fisherman, just a normal guy. Uh, not somebody that's been to a lengthy seminary or has a great resume. Instead, as you uh, maybe has as you've learned about Peter, you know about some of the things of his life. He's normal and average, a, a lot like us, uh, like some of us in the room. Some of you are much more religious than I am. I relate more to Peter, who denies Christ often and uh, is is feeling guilt and has to repent over that. And so Peter, this normal fisherman guy, uh, is being used by God to to be this ambassador of this minister of reconciliation to proclaim the message of hope to proclaim the good news to the world and so he wrote this this particular letter to a, a group of christians who were suffering a group of christians who were who were gathering throughout uh, asia minor worshiping Christ together living in faithfulness and obedience to Christ and peter writes this with the hope that they would continue in their faithfulness to jesus so I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again together, and then we'll jump into verse 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in these towns throughout Asia Minor, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. These people are scattered throughout. They've been chosen by God to represent God. They're living in a time of suffering, in a time of persecution, in a time of trial. And so with that, Peter was, was tasked with uh, giving encouragement, reassuring these believers that the hope that they have in Jesus is a worthy hope to live for and to not give up on that particular hope. And then we get to verse 3, and it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a lot of things within this small verse that I think that I don't want us to pass to pass over. Number one, our focus should be on our future inheritance. We have to have this focus of things to come. We have to have a focus on uh, what the future holds for us. And the only way that we can focus in on what's going to happen in the future is to, to, to look at what has happened in the past. So we're not just living in the past or settling with what's happened in the past, but instead our focus is in on we have a future hope 
We have a future inheritance. We have future grace awaiting us because of what is anchored in the past through what Christ has accomplished and completed. So our, our attention should be focused in on always, this is when we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves, our attention should always be on what Christ has done, what he's already done, what he has completed. I know there are many great things that have happened throughout history. There are many, many great things that have happened throughout history. Like the establishing of Texas as a country was a great thing that happened in history. But it ain't that great compared to what Christ has done. It's not that great. There are many, many, many great things that have happened in the past. And you often, and I often decide, maybe someone has taught us this way, or we've decided through our own experiences, through our own wisdom, through our own knowledge, what, what it is that we want to hold on to from the past. What we say is most important. Well, I want to base my life upon these things from from the past. I want to anchor my soul or anchor my life or anchor my heart, my future decisions upon these things from, from the past. Some of those things are important. I'm going to call out a couple this morning. I do not have permission to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Mr. and Mrs. Browning, 71 years ago, 71 years ago, made vows to one another to remain faithful to one another through a Christian marriage. 71 years ago. August, 20, August 21st, they'll celebrate 71 years of marriage. I can't even imagine living to be 71. Things like that are a worthy thing to anchor in. Hey, we've made vows to one another, and we're going to stay and remain faithful to, to those things. But even as incredible as that is, and as incredible as their example is of a godly marriage, of a Christ-centered marriage, Christ is the one that we focus in on. What he has accomplished, what he has completed, is what gives us future grace. What, it's what gives us a living hope, something to live by. I want to commend the Brownings, and I want to have a marriage that lasts just as long as the Lord wills. But I want my marriage and I want their marriage the same to be focused in on the past work of Jesus and the future that it, that it gives us, the future that it holds. And so this is why, why Peter really begins this verse 3 with this blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with praise. He, begin, he begins with worship. Simply stated, and I don't think Peter was necessarily saying this is how we live a godly life, that every morning you wake up and you begin your day with praise or worship. But it does help. It does focus our attention to, to focus in on songs that are going to point us to Jesus, to focus in on singing praise and thanksgiving to the one who is in control of all things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Specific here. We're not just praying to all the gods. We're, we're praying to someone specifically. We're praying to and blessing and worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is important, that we would spend our days anchoring our lives, reorienting our lives, using the compass of Jesus to direct our lives in worship of Jesus. John Piper, maybe you know him, maybe you're against him or for him or whatever. He wrote a, he wrote a great book, and, and one of the things he says in this book is missions exist because worship doesn't. We go and evangelize the world because we, we feel as if, and we know as if, Christ deserves worship. 
God deserves worship. He is worthy of worship. And so because of that, we go and proclaim Christ to the nations. We go and proclaim Christ to our neighbors, to our family, because we want them to worship Christ because he is worthy of worship. John Piper goes on to say, worship is ultimate. Not just gathering together as folks who have unity, or gathering together just to extend love to one another, but we gather together because we want to worship Jesus, because he's worthy of that. We use our lives daily in worship of Jesus because he's worthy of that. We're saying, Christ, you are ultimate, and so my entire life I will use to worship you. I will use my time, my resources, my marriage, my friendships, my jobs, my hobbies, everything to worship you because you are worthy of that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, according, this is why, why do we worship God? According to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. And I can't help it, I'm a kid of the 90s, and so every time I hear, uh, when I hear the word mercy, I think about Uncle Jesse from Full House saying, uh, Lord have mercy. Uh, but according to his great mercy, this is why we worship God. Because he extends mercy to us. And maybe you have this verse memorized, maybe you have it on a coffee cup, maybe you follow a cool Instagram account and they post really cool pictures with this verse on there. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is a promise from God. His words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercy, His steadfast love, they never cease and they never end. We never see an end to this. This is why hope is always followed by a comma. And behind hope we see mercy, we see steadfast love, we see God continually working, never ending, holding and keeping to his promises. Titus chapter 3 says this, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he appeared through Jesus, he saved us, not because of our performance or our work, not because of works done by us, even in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us because of his mercy. How did he save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That picture there of God pouring out his grace or his love or his mercy on us richly, I'll give you a simple illustration. And I know you love this. Even if you don't eat these today because of a diet that you're on, you ate them at some point. But think about the largest stack of flapjacks or pancakes you've ever seen. Your grandma makes them maybe and she sits them on a plate in front of you. And then what's, what's needed with the pancakes? It needs butter. And then on top of the butter, what does it need? It needs syrup. I don't care what kind it is, whatever, angel mama or maple, whatever you want to figure out, that's fine, okay? And so you grab the bottle of syrup and you pour the syrup on the pancakes and you have no idea when to stop. You have no control. You continue to pour and pour and pour and pour. And the syrup is just flowing over. And it looks like some great waterfall from Yosemite or Philippines or somewhere. It's just overflowing. That's the picture. What Christ does for us daily with his grace and his mercy. He pours it out upon us and it flows over and over and over. You cannot contain it. 
And so with that daily, we say we have a living hope in our, in our Savior Jesus because it starts out with the mercy that he's pouring on us daily that cannot be contained. In fact, you can't even stop it. When your grandma says, well, Matt Harvey, put the syrup down. You can try and say that to God. Hey, Lord, stop pouring your mercy out on me. Stop pouring your loving kindness and your steadfast love on me. Those things never cease. He continues to pour steadfast love, mercy on you. I'll continue with Titus chapter 3. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The hope that we have in eternal, eternal life. This future inheritance that we have. God's great mercy brings to us this moment of worship, this moment of, I can, I can rest in Christ. I, I see Him pouring His love out upon me. My mind is fixed on the sacrifice that He's made for me. For me. My mind is fixed on that though He sacrificed Himself in my place and took upon God's wrath upon Himself, death did not stop Him. Grace and love and mercy continue to be poured out because Christ resurrected from the grave. And because of that, we can continue to walk no matter the trial or the suffering or the moment that we're in. We can continue to walk in obedience and faithfulness to Christ because of his great mercy. It's also cool this, uh, what, what God's mercy does for us. God's grace, his, his, his great mercy brings unity. Number one, His mercy brings unity between God and man. Because of His mercy, He brings us in unity, in fellowship with Him. Where we were set up, separated from Him because of sin, now we are unified with Him through the sacrifice of His Son where there was a great chasm that separated us, now because of the mercy of God, He restores that relationship and brings us back into fellowship or unity with Him. Unity happened in, in the garden before sin, before rebellion. There was unity. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was unity. There was fellowship. God walked with Adam and Eve. They walked together. They had right relationship. And then rebellion and sin entered the world. And with that, a separation happened. And how does God remedy that? How does he fix that separation? He sends his son through mercy to restore that relationship. And that's the good news. And this is what we preach to ourselves every day, or we should be preaching to ourselves every day. I cannot work hard enough or build enough things or jump high enough or run fast enough to jump over that great chasm. But because of God's mercy, He has provided a way for me through His Son, Jesus. And so I will trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. So God's great mercy brings unity between us and God, or God and us. And also, because of this mercy, it brings unity between man and man, between humans. We can gather together this morning in unity because of the mercy that God has given to you. Because of the mercy that God has given to me, we can gather in unity. In First Peter, how can Jews and Gentiles who are, were supposed to always be separated, how can they now gather together and worship God? 
because of God's great mercy. Because of him sending his son to reconcile the world, to remove sin and death, now Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, cross-culturally can join together in unity under the umbrella, under the mercy of Jesus, and worship Christ together. I was real quiet. I'm not sure why. Okay, let's move on. The fair. You need some funnel cake right now. I know how you are. All right? Or some sweet tea or go fill your lemonade cup up. That's what we should have done this morning. should have brought your cups this morning. We could have filled them up with lemonade. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. This is why we worship him. He caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again. You remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to, to uh, Jesus Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He knew the law. Uh, he, he taught. He was very religious. And he meets Jesus at night. Nick at night. He meets Jesus at night. And they have this conversation about what it looks like to be saved, basically. And Jesus tells him in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot have a relationship with the Father. Unless you're born again, you cannot be in, in the midst of the Father. Unless you're born again, you cannot have right relationship with the Father. Well, how can you be born again? Nicodemus asked this great question. What am I supposed to get back into my mother's belly? I'm supposed to go back into the womb? How does that happen? You can't. It can't happen. So something supernatural has to happen. Something outside of our power has to happen. He has caused us to be born again. The work happens through Jesus. Being born again happens through the work of Jesus. It's interesting this being born again just it means a new beginning. A new beginning. Which if you know anything about words in Greek and books of the Bible, there is a, a book in the Bible that we translate from from Hebrew to to Greek. It's the first book. I'm looking for an answer here. It's called Genesis, and it means the beginning. And when Matthew writes about the genealogy of Jesus, he uses the Greek word Genesis to talk about Jesus' birth. Which is crazy, and you didn't catch that. But when Matthew wrote about Jesus coming into this world, he, he used the Greek word Genesis to talk about his birth, a, a new beginning. Like, like, forget about what happened, almost. Know that when Jesus came upon the earth, a new beginning will happen. The work that Jesus has done is enough. And he's going to come and restore all things to the way that they should be to the glory of the Father, to the, to the glory of the Father, so that he may be worshipped. This new beginning happens through Christ and Christ alone. The, the only way we can be born again is through the work of Jesus. Jesus is bringing to us, when he causes us to be born again, he's bringing to us a new identity, a new beginning. He's doing in us what needs to be done but only he can do. And we submit willfully to him saying, do your work, Jesus. Create in me a new heart. Cleanse me. Make me new. 
Take away the old, the sin that separates, and cause me to be born again. This being born again is not something you can do. Obviously, you cannot get back into your mama's belly. It's completely outside of your capabilities. It has to be done by Jesus. And this is where Ephesians chapter 2 fits well into that. Because if you could do that work, then you would boast about it. See how well I was reborn? See how well I was born again? See how good I am at those things? We would begin to boast at those things. And so it must be done by Jesus and Jesus alone so that he receives all the glory and the honor. And this, is, this being born again is really, really important. It's regeneration. Remember from Titus chapter 3. Uh, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, it's being born again by renewal of the Holy Spirit. Removing all sin, removing all oldness, removing all the old ways of life and creating in you a new person, a new spirit. One day having a new body, but at this particular time, a new spirit, a new, a newness about you, a new creation so that you might be used by him in faithfulness to what he desires of you. This is what I hear often in our world today. Like I know that I'm born again. I pray to receive Christ. He has changed me. And so I know that I've been born again. If I was to ask you this morning and you were to show my hands, many of you in this room would say, yeah, I've been born again. Christ has changed me. But then we continue to live in the old way. We continue to live in our pre-born again state. We hear things like, uh, well, this is just who I am. This is my personality. Or my favorite is I wasn't raised this way. Like I hear what Jesus is saying, particularly, and this is a hard one, I know. And I, I'm not saying that this is like conviction, like the, the church should be a part of this. But things like when, when Jesus says, go sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then follow me, or let the dead bury the dead. Those types of things that are really hard to, to grasp. You know, I wasn't raised that way. This is how I was raised as a, as a, a believer. Can I just say in the born again talk here, I, I agree with you. Like you weren't raised that way. You were raised in a completely different way. If you are born again, you were raised from the dead. Raised to a new life. Raised to something greater than yourself. Raised to something greater than your culture. Raised to something greater than the inheritance that we think that we have upon this earth. We were raised to something greater. So continue to use that. Continue to use personality and your raising as your excuse. But be convicted of that and say, change me. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we would be changed, transformed from the inside out, that Christ would be changing us, and that we would be, we would be evidence, we would be giving evidence to the living hope that directs our entire life. Sin must be removed. And our, our Savior must rule in our hearts. Our affection towards Him must grow so that our faithfulness will grow, so that our lives will glorify the Son and not sin. 
Let's move on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again, not just so that we can bask in that born againness, but he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, or for a living hope. He's caused us to be born again, not to dead things, just to be born again and continue to walk in deadness, or continue to walk in formal ways, but instead, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's living. Peter says it's a living hope. It's a growing hope. Number one, it's Jesus. This living hope that we have is Jesus. It's a confident expectation in the promises of God. A confident expectation in the life to come. A confident expectation in the completed work of Jesus and the hope that follows what Christ has done. Peter says it's living. It indicates that it's growing and that it increases. It grows in strength year by year. Every suffering, every trial, every moment should spur us along, should cause us to look to Jesus, our living hope, and that our strength and our confidence in him grows constantly. If such, uh, Gruden says this, Wayne Gruden says, if such a growing hope is the expected result of being born again, then perhaps the degree to which believers have an intense, confident expectation of the life to come is one useful, is a useful measure of progress towards spiritual maturity. You want to claim to be spiritually mature, then your hope in Jesus should constantly be growing. A growing, a living hope growing in faithfulness, growing in the confident expectations of the promises of God. I'm going to show you another visual here. Uh, this is a picture, first picture here. Uh, I have labeled this picture uh, the potential. It just has a lot of potential in it. Uh, potential thunderstorm growing in the background. Uh, potential uh, wind energy there and that broken windmill. <laughs> uh, potential, uh, it's hard to see, but there's nothing on that in that field. It's just dirt. Uh, but potential, lots of potential there. It's a plowed field with a ton of potential that many of us will continue just to live in. Second picture is this. The second picture is uh, just a, a few weeks later, and uh, you can see that seed was planted. And uh, what happens when seed's planted and it receives water, things begin to grow. And so the the picture goes from just potential so now we have some hope. We have some hope all of a sudden. Why? Because in the former picture, it just looked like death. Maybe we know there's a seed in the ground, and there's potential for life, but we're not seeing life. But in this picture, we see something living. And because there's something living, we have hope. And then here's another picture just from a few weeks ago. Those baby cotton plants began and continue to grow. And I would say now, with this picture, our hope is growing even more. Hope of a harvest. Hope of the things that might come out of this field. Hope of the lives that might be changed through the cotton seed or through the cotton plant or through the cotton fibers that come from this field. I can tell you that the farmer has ton of expectation and hope now because he sees his crop growing. He sees his crop more than just growing. He sees his crop 
alive. I think that's a simple, hopefully simple illustration for you. It's the same thing with Jesus. Peter follows him around. He hears his teachings. Jesus begins to start saying difficult things like the Son of Man must die. He hears Jesus talking in John chapter 12 about that this seed must fall to the ground and die so that it might be lifted up so that all men might be drawn to it. Peter hears these things. Jesus, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be sacrificed. I don't want you to be murdered. And then like we talked about last week, they go to the, to the garden and Jesus is about to be arrested. And Peter responds to this arresting. My hope is about to be arrested. My hope is about to be thrown in jail. My hope is about to be sacrificed. My hope is about to be wrongly accused. My hope is about to be murdered. And if he's murdered and he's put into the grave, where is my hope? And so in that wrestling, Peter, though he's heard the words of Jesus, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. I will not. I will never deny you. I've seen who you are. Wait for the moment, Peter. You will deny me. And as Peter is wrestling with his hope in Jesus, and yet he has hope in Jesus, but he's experiencing the suffering of the world, he begins to wrestle. And someone asks him, weren't you with him? And he denies. And then he denies again. And he denies again. He's wrestling with this. Why? Because he sees hope fading. He sees the current circumstances of the world. He sees the current circumstances of his Savior, of his friend. And he says, where is my hope? What a difference Sunday makes. Jesus is crucified. He's murdered. He's placed in a tomb. And he's buried. And Peter must have been reeling, not just because he's a fisherman. He must have been reeling through that, thinking through, where is my hope? My hope is in Jesus, but he's dead. My hope is in Jesus, but he's dead. Where is my hope now? And then on the third day, on the third day, Christ resurrects from the grave by the power of God. He resurrects from the grave, and he becomes alive again. And Jesus, uh, Peter's hope changes drastically. His whole life changes drastically because now he has a living hope. He has a living hope. When the, when the field is plowed and nothing is growing, there's potential, but there's no hope. And my fear is that too many Christians hang out in that plowed, empty field, just waiting, waiting for something new, waiting for something exciting or extravagant to, to happen, just waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting, even though all, all the while we have a living hope, no longer do we have to be in a dry and empty field, basking in nothingness, basking only in potential, but instead now we have a living hope that our faith can grow in, that we can grow in spiritual maturity because we have a hope in Jesus. 
I'll quote this again for you, John 12, 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus did that for us. His body was laid in the ground. And when he resurrected on the third day, much fruit is still being produced because of that. And so daily we should be reminded of that. That we have been born again. Calls have been born again. And we have a living hope. Have you? Have you looked around at the circumstances around you? The trials. The things going on around you. And you thought for a moment, there is no hope. What you're doing is you're looking at the empty field. You're looking at the, the tomb. You're looking at Jesus being buried and you're forgetting about him rising from the dead. Have you looked at the suffering and the trials that you're facing and felt as if, as if that was the or is the end of the story? What if you went back to that same field with the windmill and just continued to say, well, there was lots of potential there and just celebrated the potential? There'd be no hope in that. But go in a few weeks when the cotton plant's blooming and the bumblebees are pollinating and, and hope begins to grow even more. And that cotton bowl begins to open and the white cotton fibers begin to show and hope begins to grow even more. And then the leaves fall off and the fields are white with harvest, ready to be harvested, and the hope grows even more. So is the same with our relationship with Jesus. Daily walking with him in obedience and faithfulness to him, studying his word, preaching the gospel to ourselves, hearing about what Christ has done for us, anticipating the future hope that we have in him because of the completed work that he has done. Through, okay, let's finish here. Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection, his resurrection makes believers his children. His resurrection gives us life. His resurrection gives us an inheritance. His resurrection makes life possible. Romans chapter 12, Colossians chapter 1. Through him, all things exist. If it wasn't for him, we'd have no life. Future tense. In the new heaven and the new earth, there is no need for a sun, S-U-N, because of the sun, S-O-N, because of his radiance, because of his glory. We only need him. His resurrection makes believers his children. His resurrection gives us life. His, resurre his resurrection makes life possible. Peter, Peter writes of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. Peter's hope, his hope is in God because God has provided salvation. God has provided deliverance. God has provided the way for sin to be erased, for death to be removed. And so because of that, we have a living hope in Jesus. Hope was reborn in Peter's heart with the sight of seeing his resurrected Savior, Jesus. And so yours should be also. Daily, when the circumstances and the suffering, the trials of this world, and the future persecution that you, you may experience, when those things happen, quickly preach the gospel to yourself. Quickly remind yourself of the living hope that we have in Jesus. Our hope is anchored in the past. 
Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present because Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future because Jesus is coming back. Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Peter is not trusting in himself, in his own growth, in his own perfection, in his own performance. He's putting his entire earthly life and entire eternal life in the living hope he has in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for conquering sin, for beating Satan, for taking the pangs of death and removing them from us. And though, Christ, you know what we are experiencing, you know us so well because you've created us. God, help us just in this moment to see the beauty of your resurrection. And then with that, cause us to worship you. For you're worthy of that. God, we have a living hope and you know that. So, so help us not to live as people holding on to dead things or living just in places of potential but instead help us to rest and that Jesus is enough and help us to trust completely in you and you alone stir in us this morning in Jesus name I pray Amen